good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. The New York Times reports Ukraine wants the U.S. to send more powerful weapons. Biden is not so sure. President Biden wants to avoid provoking Russia at a moment when American officials fear President Putin could escalate the war to compensate for recent losses. For insight into this, let's turn to our first guest. He's a Moscow-based analyst, international relations and security analyst, Mark Schloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back. Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on The Critical Hour. So the Times reports, flush with success in northeast Ukraine, President Zelensky is pressing Biden for a new and more powerful weapon, a missile system with a range of 190 miles, which could reach far into Russian territory. Now, Zelensky insists to U.S. officials that he has no intention of striking Russian cities or aiming at civilian targets Now, even though, according to the Times, Putin's forces have hit apartment blocks, theaters, and hospitals in Ukraine. Mark, a couple of things. One, Zelensky's promises sound, I'll call that the the wimpy diplomacy, I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. But help me with this narrative, flush with success in northeast Ukraine and Putin's forces have hit apartment blocks, theaters, and hospitals. Most, if not all, of those stories have been debunked since the conflict started. So help me out by peeling back this onion and kind of explaining the New York Times narrative here. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's so much disinformation <laughs> here that, it, I mean, you really have to go not just line by line, but phrase by phrase. Uh, so, uh, first of all, flush with success. All right. yeah. Well, that certainly deserves a caveat. I mean, they punched air and took they outmaneuvered Russia. Uh, they attacked everywhere at once. Russia couldn't defend everything at once and continue their offensive in the Donbass. So they prioritized and pulled out of Kharkov. There was very little fighting, and even Western uh, military analysts have, have admitted that. So, yeah, they outmaneuvered Russia's forces. Russia withdrew from territory, and they punched air and uh, seized uh, territory that, I mean— There aren't any major settlements there. It's very sparsely populated. They took a lot of villages. They haven't even moved into all of them yet um, as of this weekend because um, they don't don't have enough forces on hand to reoccupy every one of them while still positioning troops uh, to go to the south for uh, another looming counteroffensive attempt down there. Uh, But, um, I mean – they suffered more casualties, probably uh, from Ukrainian sources, on a five-to-one basis um, for taking that territory. So 
if you're suffering five times more casualties and your opponent re retreats before you even started moving into the territory, calling that a success is really more of a PR exercise than it is any strategic reality for a you know a long-term conflict. Um, second of all, the idea that Zelensky hasn't hit civilian buildings or infrastructure, I'm, what, what, what planet is the New York Times living on? Because the Kiev regime has been shelling the Donbass, hitting civilian targets for the last eight years, nonstop. That continues up till today. There were more attacks just this weekend uh, against residential areas, dropping uh, as well as normal artillery shells, uh, dropping these um, uh, pedal flower petal landmines, as they're called, over civilian areas of the city. Uh, uh, you know, specifically to target the people who live there, as well as attacking electrical infrastructure, not just in the Donbass, but in Russia as well. So, I mean, this is just a complete lie. Um, second of all, uh, the mention that Russia has hit schools, hospitals and residential buildings Yes, selected ones. And as Amnesty International pointed out, as has been previously reported in the New York Times, that um, the uh, Kiev regime forces were occupying every mm -hmm. school, hospital uh, and residential building and using them as firing points, often without even removing the population in the residential buildings, effectively using them as human shields and committing war crimes themselves in the process. So, I mean, phrase by phrase, we have to debunk the lies. Well, Mark, it's called an information war, but what I keep uh, bringing up about the information war is this. The war is directed towards the American people. It ain't an information war on Russia. It's an information on the people. Not in English. No, yeah, exactly. Not in, in the New York Times, that too is. Uh, here's a, 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 one that I'm the story that I want to hear your thoughts on. Putin warns of serious response to Ukraine terror acts after repeated military gains by Ukrainian forces. You notice that every one of this, oh, the Ukrainians are winning. The Russian leader pledges to end restraint and intensify special military option. So they tr always try to paint it like he's desperate. But here's the real reality. They're blowing up and killing um, academics like, uh, 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 um, you know, Ms. Dugina. Um, there, you know, there's legitimate terrorist attacks going on here. And Putin's saying if the terrorist attacks came up, ah, things are going to get ugly. Your thoughts on that? What does that really mean? Yeah, I mean, there certainly are some acts that, that could be considered terrorist attacks, right? Um, uh, 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 targeting an ammunition depot behind the lines, uh, whether with HIMARS or uh, with sabotage attacks or drones, as has more like more often been the case. Okay, that that is a legitimate target, right? Uh, you know, um, a, a Putin can refer to when it's conducted by sabotage forces as terrorism. That is not. Right. However, attacks on civilian targets, uh, the assassination of uh, a, a female academic and war correspondent. Um, uh, and um, we've also seen multiple assassinations 
of Eastern Ukrainian leaders, um, uh, uh, leaders uh, that have uh, assumed positions in the Donbass as well as Kharkov. Uh, I'm sorry, not Kharkov, uh, Kherson and Zaporozhye in the south. The Kiev regime is conducting a campaign to assassinate, often brutally, not only the leaders but their families as well. You know, for daring challenge, uh, you know, the authority of the Putsch regime that themselves seized power in Kiev in 2014. Um, that that is, you know, uh, there, there's there's no uh, that is not a legitimate target, uh, particularly when they've extended it to their families as well. So that certainly qualifies as terrorism. But yet we have not seen a real response, and we have seen multiple Russian red lines pressed from attacks in the Crimea, which was once considered a red line, um, and and multiple missile uh, weapon systems being provided to. Kiev, none of them being the miracle weapons that they've promised, um, and um, they continue openly. American officials ref literally refer to their tactic as boiling the frog, increasing you know their their military intelligence and economic assistance to Ukraine one escalatory step at a time while getting away without provoking Moscow into some large-scale retaliation with any major single move. They're gloating about that. I mean, they're openly commenting to the media, ha ha, we're successfully, you know, escalating step by step and we haven't been punched back enough yet. Um, well, that works up until it doesn't. Um, and um, I think that uh, last week, uh, Russia's uh, selected for the first time in this conflict the the uh, serious targeting of Russian electrical infrastructure and uh, a couple of dams. Uh, although they they had very specific tactical usage, it certainly was a demonstration of what this war could look like if Russia took off their self-imposed kids' gloves, their limitations of the special military operation, and actually began uh, a, a uh, real war uh, against Ukraine. And, and, you know, as they see it, they're at war with NATO as well. Uh, when you're providing the money, the arms, the training, the intelligence, the, the battlefield direction and everything else, um, it's, it's pretty hard not to see it that way. It's only that the Ukrainians on both sides of the conflict actually are doing most of the dying. I want to go back to the New York Times story uh, because the Times says Biden is resisting sending these other uh, longer range weapons in part because he's convinced that over the past seven months, he has successfully signaled to Putin that he does not want a border war with Russians. He just wants them out of Ukraine. We're trying to avoid World War III, Biden often reminds his aides, echoing a statement he has made publicly as well. Your thoughts on this sounds to me, as we're getting close to the midterm elections, as the New York Times is trying to paint as rosy of a picture for this as Biden as it can. Well, that's that's funny because that's actually Putin's goal as well. He doesn't want a border war with the U.S. He just wants the U.S. out of and NATO out of Ukraine. So <laughs> and that, that's probably why he didn't overthrow. That's probably why he didn't overthrow the government of Mexico and install an anti-government, uh, an anti-U.S. government in Mexico like we did in Ukraine. Yeah. Um, so. Um, 
Here, I, I think the real hesitation here, I, I honestly do not believe that if they provided long-range uh, missiles uh, like these uh, attackums that can be fired from existing HIMARS units. First, first of all, it's, it's certainly not a capability that the Russians don't themselves possess in much greater number and variety and have been using. So, I mean, if that is the type of weapon system that would, quote, win the war, then Russia would win it several times over first, right? Um, this will prolong it. Uh, it could do some damage, uh, but it is certainly not a game changer. It's no different than any of the other uh, miracle we we weapon. And we, we get conflicting reports in the New York Times article who one say that we have to give the Ukrainians what it would take to win the, what they need to win the war. And then later down, experts admit that this would not allow them to win the war. So I mean, <laughs> that's every newspaper. That, 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 that is literally in the New York Times. They're separated by a couple paragraphs. Uh, so um, the, the logic then, uh, uh, you know, fails uh, to reach me other than, you know, prolonging the, 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 pro the conflict as long as possible, guaranteeing that more Ukrainians on both sides of the conflict die. And if, if that's the NATO, if that's the U.S. goal, then you know, they will continue. But this this would not win the war uh, for Ukraine. Um, it would give Russia uh, lots of experience with countering it with their own air defense systems, which have already adjusted to the high Mars and, and proven, you know, uh, with a fairly high degree of success capable of taking them down unless it's accompanied or preceded by uh, several um, barrages from other uh, uh, existing uh, multiple launch rocket systems in Ukraine's inventory that they might have left, like grads. That's a tactic they've been using. They try to overwhelm by using the cheap Ukrainian stuff first and then claim that the HIMARS was successful. Yeah, because we, we knocked down, you know, 10 or 20 of the other uh, uh, incoming rockets first. Well, Mark, this is this is all about playing off last week's um, uh, 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 success on paper that they had that, you know, they had a tactical. I mean, they did say, you know, they moved into some towns. The Russians moved out of some towns. But this is all about trying to use that to its fullest potential, um, in my opinion, for the narrative. About one minute. Yeah. Um, I, 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 good question is after. So let's say that Biden bowed to the, you know, his, his war hawks as if he's not one and gave them the attack of missile. And that didn't win the war in Ukraine. What's next? Right. Exactly. But where, where, where do we escalate further from there? And what is Russia's response to that? Because the response might not be against the U.S. directly, but it would certainly uh, finally maybe propel the Kremlin to changing the special military operation to something more serious legalistically. Mark Sloboda, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. 
update funeral for Queen Elizabeth II ushers in the end of an era. This is according to the Washington Post. Monday today finally marks the end of the second Elizabethan age. Westminster Abbey's tenor bell tolled 96 times once for each year of her life before her coffin was carried in the, into the, for the state funeral. Behind it, her eldest son, Charles III, who's 73, taking the reins of the kingdom. Here's my question. The optics tell us it's the end of an era, but with Charles at the helm of the firm, I think it's business as usual. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He holds the John Jay and Rebecca Moore's Chair of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's one of the most prolific writers of our time. His latest book is entitled The Counter-Revolution of 1836, Texas Slavery, Jim Crow, and the Roots of American Fascism. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, sir, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. So let's put the pomp and the circumstance behind us. I know that the optics serve a purpose, perpetuating a narrative and an image, but these folks are worth to close to a trillion dollars. So, you know, we can talk about the end of the Elizabethan age from a social, I guess, perspective or from an optics perspective, the matronly, nice old lady walking around patting people on their heads. But in terms of the politics and in terms of the economic realities of the firm, uh, it's business as usual. I think that's a fair point. And in fact, you may have invited the wrong guest on because <laughs> you would have been better off inviting on a parapsychologist, to say <laughs> a scientist who studies parasites, because this blood-sucking family in London uh, deserves no commendation, to put it mildly. In fact, it reminds me of the comment by the late Moms Mabley. I'm sure you recall her. I do. The comic who was notorious for saying, my daddy told me if somebody dies, if you can't say anything good about them, don't say nothing. So she would say, <laughs> Queen Elizabeth died, good. <laughs> so I would say that uh, this pomp and circumstance in London was an insult to all of the victims of the British Empire. I hear their voices still moaning and groaning from the graves. Think about it, for example. When so-called Queen Elizabeth ascends to the throne, one of the first acts of Her Majesty's government is to send a flotilla to then British Guyana, now Guyana, the only English-speaking state in North America, to dislodge the left-leaning regime of Chetty Jagan and then stir up antagonism, which is bedeviling that nation to this very day, between those of African descent and those of South Asian descent. Of course, I'm sure your audience is familiar with the so-called Mau Mau revolt and the state of emergency implanted during her reign in Kenya, East Africa, and by the way, as I noted in my book on Kenya, U.S. nationals, particularly Euro-Americans, were working cheek by jowl with Her Majesty's armed forces in Kenya in terms of repressing and suppressing that African revolt. And then, to exemplify the point that they were a kind of equal opportunity oppressors, recall what happened in 1975 in Australia 
when mm-hmm. Her Majesty's Governor General collaborated with U.S. imperialism. The Governor General, of course, is the Crown's representative in these states that still hold her dear as head of state. Canada, uh, Jamaica, for example, and of course Australia. And so the Governor General conspires with U.S. imperialism to dislodge the left-leaning government of Gough Whitlam of the Labor Party. And of course, that was so notorious, it was portrayed in the Hollywood blockbuster, The Falcon and the Snowman, starring Sean Penn. And lest we forget, there was the overthrow of the left-leaning government in Grenada, the tiny island in the Caribbean comprised mostly of people of African descent. Once again, it was the governor general, the crown's representative in Grenada, who conspired with the regime of Reagan in Washington to assemble a U.S. invasion force uh, to the point that even Margaret Thatcher, who was supposedly uh, one of uh, Mr. Reagan's closest allies, uh, he, Margaret Thatcher objected because basically the U.S. went behind her back to collaborate with a representative of the Crown. And I think that that exposes and reveals why it is that this ceremony, so-called, in London this morning, is receiving so much attention on this side of the Atlantic. You'd never know that supposedly this government was born in 1776 in a revolt against the crown. But I think what it really reveals is that this so-called revolt against the crown in 1776 uh, basically was not the sort of revolution that many have been taught to believe and which you will be reprimanded, rebuked, if not worse, if you contend otherwise. It was basically a counter-revolution based upon narrow interests of the governing class that emerged in North America designed to further loot the Native Americans and further enslave the Africans. And let's not even talk about Prince Philip, the man who predeceased Her Majesty. Uh, This was a man of Greek origin, which means that King Charles III, as he is now being called, is half Greek. And, of course, this kind of intermarriage between and amongst royal families was meant to solidify a certain iteration of whiteness and white supremacy, although I don't think that uh, Prince Philip was her cousin, because that was quite notorious for the royal families to engage in incest, which then led to physical and mental deformations. But on second thought, uh, I'm not sure if King Charles III is all there. So perhaps he is a product of that kind of deformation. But in any case, Chris Phillip was notorious for his racist comments. And I won't insult your audience by uh, sounding off on his uh, many blunders and malaprops over the years, but you can easily find them online. Wow. Um, I did want to ask you about this. It's interesting that the queen died now, particularly two things. We've got um, you know, some of the Caribbean islands and some places around the world saying we no longer want to be under the monarchy. And at a time when we, I think this is big, the SCO meeting last last week, when the, the UK, the US empire, that Anglo-Saxon empire that has controlled money, that has controlled the economic system and used that coercively. And now we see these, this gigantic, monstrous economic system being born that seems to be, in my opinion, 
Union set to to eventually overtake it. Your thoughts on all of that at this particular time when the Queen dies? Well, it is ironic, if not poetically appropriate, that Her Majesty kicked the bucket uh, as the Shanghai Cooperation Organization was meeting in Central Asia, inaugurating a new world order, a world order that will eclipse the one set by the crown in the 1500s, and fortunately coming to a screeching halt. I think it's also striking, is it not, that you had all of the U.S. major media devoting uh, really just an extraordinary amount of time to this parasite uh, expiring, despite the fact that a good deal of their audience is not interested in this hoopla. And it seems that they have this assignment to continue to throw dust in the eyes of their audiences, whether or not their audiences are evading and eluding that dust that is directed at them. And so it seems that not far behind in terms of the expiration of Queen Elizabeth is what Bob Iger, the former chairman and CEO of Disney, called the death of linear television. Uh, He sees that cable networks and other networks on television have one foot on a banana peel. They're headed for the dustbin of history. And certainly by giving all of this airtime to this death of this parasite helps to validate what Bob Iger has been contending. I find it interesting. It's being reported that Harry and Meghan were snubbed in the seating arrangements. They were put in the second row where they even had to sit behind Prince Andrew, who was stripped of his duties due to his relationship with convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. So I guess Meghan had to sit in the back of the bus, figuratively, uh, as it relates to the seating at uh, Westminster Abbey. Uh, but would like to really get, in, in a couple minutes we have left, this whole uh, imagery of the end of the second Elizabethan age. W- what, does that, what does that mean to you? Because as I said in the open, uh, the, the, the so-called royal family is often called the firm. This is a business empire. And so this whole Elizabethan age, your thoughts? Not only is it a business empire, but we, those of us of African descent who are sitting in North America, speaking a language developed in Northwestern Europe, should take this all very seriously. Because the first Elizabeth, Elizabethan age, so-called, in the late 1500s with the first Queen Elizabeth, meant the inauguration of, or I should say, the acceleration of the unlimited African slave trade. That is what distinguished the first Elizabethan age. That is one of the reasons why there are so many black people walking the streets of Washington, D.C. as we speak. And for those who have a heart and a conscience, and I know that that probably reduces the cohort uh, tremendously by adding that qualifier, uh, they all should be up in arms about the time devoted to the death of this so-called queen because they visited misery 
uh, see countless numbers all over the world. They're sitting on a major fortune, as you suggested, most of which was plundered from the Americas, from Africa, from Asia. And if there's any justice, we will seize the opportunity to make reparations, the order and the cry of the day, relieving King Charles III of some of that misbegotten wealth that he now sits on. In fact, I believe on top of I, I saw a picture of on top of the casket and there's the, you know, the regal purple uh, pillow or whatever. And sitting on top of that is that, with that crown with the star of Africa in it. Dr. Hort. One minute. There are just so many jewels that have been looted from South Africa in particular. And South Africa is a middle ranking power. It has heft. It's part of the BRICS. I would urge and encourage our friends in South Africa to raise through the BRICS, to get them to raise with London the pressing issue of returning of that looted and plundered wealth to South Africa as a prelude to a massive program of reparations, not only to African nations plundered by the slave trade, but to the children of Africa now languishing on these shores in North America. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. China warns against separating Taiwan after U.S. vows to protect island from, quote, unprecedented attack, end quote. China, which views Taiwan as its breakaway province, has repeatedly condemned U.S. support for the island, slamming it as a violation of the communiques underpinning the Washington-Taipei diplomatic relationship. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist, writer, and teacher, K.J. No. As always, K.J., welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. So it's reported Beijing has lodged a protest with the U.S. over recent remarks by President Biden regarding Washington's assistance to Taiwan in the event of an attack on the island by mainland China. This is according to Chinese Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Mao Ning. She stressed that China, quote, will not tolerate any actions aimed at splitting the country, end quote, and separate Taiwan, adding that Beijing, quote, reserves the right to take all necessary measures to prevent such a scenario, end quote. KJ, there seems to be a lot of chatter from the U.S. about backing Taiwan if China invades or threatens. My question is, where's the indication from China that it wants to do that? This appears to me as though the U.S., through its rhetoric and action, a la Pelosi's visit, for example, is trying to make this a self-fulfilling prophecy. K.J., no. I think you're absolutely correct. They want to create a self-fulfilling prophecy. They want to provoke an attack. They want to do essentially what was done in Ukraine. You're absolutely correct. Pelosi's provocative trip 
along with the current uh, Taiwan mm-hmm. uh, Policy Act, which is moving through Congress right now. These are all extraordinarily provocative and belligerent uh, actions. But the simple fact is that China wants peaceful reunification with its own province. And Taiwan is a province of China. The entire world recognizes that. The UN recognizes that. The US recognizes that. Even Taiwan's own constitution recognizes that. And so the simple fact is that the Chinese want peaceful reunification. They have said that it may take a century, but that they're willing to do it slowly and gradually. And eventually, I think what they're looking for is a one country, two systems kind of a system. But what the U.S. would like to do is under the pretext of, quote unquote, protecting Taiwan, it would like to provoke some kind of kinetic action and then use that as a case of to bandwagon uh, and attack China and to, you know, uh, essentially recreate a situation similar to Russia. That is uh, a global censure and massive sanctions, all with the goal of undermining and taking down China. You know, and and I think you're right. I think, in my opinion, the U.S. doesn't really want a kinetic war with Russia or China. Now it wants to make all of the money it can building up as though it would have one, but we've already seen what they want to do. They want to provoke a war and then get all of their buddies in the EU to join in and then say, great, now we'll do the sanctions thing. But I think there's an air of desperation because the winter is near. And their coalition is going to be in real trouble. And I personally think that Russia and China are smart enough to look at this and say they're trying to provoke us to do something now. All we got to do is sit tight through this winter and they're going to have more problems than they can deal with in, in the EU and, uh, and extended. Your thoughts? You're absolutely correct. Yes, I think China and Russia uh, are going to sit back. They have time on their side. Uh, They have all the logistical, uh, strategic uh, advantages, and I think they will sit back. I do not think that they will go for the bait, but this is an attempt to make it so intolerable that some kind of action will happen. The U.S. strategy on Taiwan is what is called a porcupine strategy, that is, make uh, Taiwan, uh, make it make, continually add quills or armaments. Uh, to Taiwan so that it can never, ever be absorbed by China. And at the same time, they also want to prepare for an asymmetrical, protracted guerrilla war. I think that's a mistake. The Chinese wrote the book on protracted warfare. They literally wrote the book on protracted warfare. (laughs) So that is yet another uh, misguided idea. But yes, China does not want a kinetic war. Time is on their side. And I think they will sit this one back despite the U.S.'s extraordinary attempts to provoke uh, some kind of kinetic engagement. Did I understand you to say that even in the Taiwan Constitution, Correct. it is stated that Taiwan is a province of China? Absolutely. Taiwan is a province of China. Uh, when the United States uh, switched its allegiance uh, to the PRC, there was uh, chatter about having Taiwan actually become, uh, you know, an independent country. But the Taiwanese refused it. They said there is only one China. Taiwan 
is a part of China. It's written into their constitution. And the argument that they said is there can be only one sun in the sky. There cannot be two suns in the same sky. We are the China and we are part of China. And that has never been changed. And the Taiwan constitution, the the ROC constitution requires a constitutional change before any kind of formal independence can be declared or, or, or manifested. So it's very interesting to me that all of this chatter in the United States, Nancy Pelosi's trip and all this other stuff, and Joe Biden saying, for example, that uh, he says U.S. troops would defend Taiwan in the event of an attack by China. And as Joe Biden loves to talk about democracy and loves to talk about sovereignty, the United States is pushing Taiwan to violate its own constitution. Yes, exactly. The U.S. is pushing Taiwan to violate its own constitution. And there are large numbers of people in Taiwan, in the political class, that are not happy with this, not to mention the majority, the vast majority of the people on Taiwan Island. They do not want to be weaponized. They do not want to be turned into cannon fodder for U.S. interests. Oh, they don't want they don't want to become Ukrainians is what you're saying. Exactly. Okay. 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 And and the the interesting thing about sovereignty is the U.S. wants to look at, oddly enough, Taiwan that they recognize as a province of China and say they should have sovereignty. And then they want to say, but China's doing this to the Xinjiang and that. So uh, in in, in a paradoxical way, they're saying we're going to recognize sovereignty for Taiwan who they don't even recognize as sovereignty, but they won't recognize China's sovereignty to act how they want to act within the constraints of their own, you know, within their own borders. KJ. You know, this is the absolute total absurdity. And this is why the Shanghai Cooperative Organization was formed, among other reasons, to reassert multilateral sovereignty and non-interference. But coming back to the whole notion, the U.S. has a very, very distorted notion of sovereignty. Uh, Samantha Power said that sovereignty is contingent, that it's not an absolute, that we essentially decide whether a country is sovereign or not. This is the rules-based order that thinks that it can determine whether a region or a country or, you know, a place is sovereign or not. And this is the same kind of hypocrisy the U.S. is trying to apply. Imagine, imagine that China had gotten involved in the U.S. Civil War. And then it decided that the losing side, the Confederacy, you know, was uh, the legitimate uh, United States and that they had armed and weaponized Galveston Island. Would the U.S. stand for this? It would not. And it's the same thing that the U.S. is doing right now with Taiwan province. It's absolutely absurd. It goes against every legal uh, an international uh, convention signed, agreed, acknowledged by the world and between the United States and China. It's an extraordinarily dangerous and provocative act that the U.S. is engaging in right now. South Korea seeks neutral ground in U.S.-China chip war. Seoul places Beijing with new supply chain agreement before joining U.S.-led chip for alliance that specifically excludes China. Uh, China and South Korea have agreed to establish a new collaborative supply chain council to address any disruptions of their extensive and interdependent economic relationship in a timely fashion. 
That, to me, KJ, speaks volumes about the future as well as the kind of behind-the-scenes recognitions and appreciations of reality in spite of or irregardless of the rhetoric and the jingoistic rhetoric and the saber-rattling that the United States is involved in. Am I making more of that than there is? Not at all. You're absolutely correct. Uh, Part of this escalation to war with China takes into consideration that if you do start a war with China, just as if you start a war with Russia, you're going to have trouble with energy supplies. Uh, If you start a war with China, you're going to have trouble with a lot of industrial products. And among them, key among them, would be semiconductors. So the U.S. created this chip for alliance between Japan, U.S., Taiwan, and South Korea. And the idea was to exclude China and enclose supply chains, i.e. create quote-unquote resilient supply chains, in preparation for war against China. The problem with this is that, for example, in the case of South Korea, it exports 40% of its semiconductors to China. That's a large part of its economy. It makes 40% of its manned semiconductors in Xi'an, for example, just one category of semiconductor alone. And then it depends on Chinese components to build their own uh, semiconductors uh, in Korea. So the interconnections are so extraordinarily enmeshed and entangled that it is not possible, certainly not in South Korea's interest, and certainly not in any of the countries, Taiwan, Japan, or Korea's interest, to get involved in the chip for the way the U.S. envisions it, because that would mean that research and IP and all of these would become jumbled among countries and companies that are actual competitors. And so what the South Koreans are doing is they're taking a step back, taking a deep breath, looking at the writing on the wall and deciding to be realistic. And they want to create a collaborative supply chain with China because they understand that it's in their interest to cooperate with China, not to compete, not to exclude, not to enclose. And we'll see how the U.S. takes it, but it is a a fairly uh, significant uh, development. Two articles, I think, go together. America's AI edge edge fading fast to China and China's supersized drone shrubs shrouded in mystery. They're showing that, uh, let's face it, uh, China's educating their people. So quite naturally, they're starting to get a technological edge. We got two minutes. Yes, absolutely. China is doing incredible things in terms of education and research. And we also have to remember that most of U.S. advantages have to do with the import of foreign talent for its science and technology. That is to say, there's a kind of constant cognitive extraction from the uh, global south and the periphery, just as there's constant resource extraction from the global south. This, you're talking about the Hungarians, Eastern Europeans, the Russians, uh, the Indians, and the Chinese. And now that is going away. Uh, and so not only is China surging ahead, and it could be uh, you know, dominant, uh, you know, or ahead of the United States in several years. But it also ties into the military technological aspects of AI. That is to say, there is something called the third offset, which is the U.S. strategy for defeating China. The first offset is mass, bigger, more powerful weapons. The second offset is precision, more precise weapons that can knock out those uh, large weapons. And the third offset is dispersion, swarming, or diffusion. 
and this diffusion is combined with automation or automated uh, aut- autonomous uh, warfare. And this also takes place in the subsurface dom- domain because that's where most of the warfare uh, will is expected to happen over the Taiwan Strait. China is pulling ahead in this third offset, this automated subsurface drone-enabled uh, diffuse warfare, and the U.S. is very, very worried about it. KJ No, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. RT reports, photo of Zelensky guard sporting Nazi insignia vanishes. An image released by the presidential office showing a soldier with an SS-style patch has been quietly removed. For insight into this and other issues, we turn to our next guest. He's an American citizen living in Crimea, Regis Tremblay. Regis, as always, welcome back. Well, Wilma and Garland, thank you very much for having me. So Ukraine's presidential office has altered the set of photos displayed from Zelensky's visit to the recently, quote unquote, recaptured town of Izium on the country's east. A picture of one of Zelensky's armed guards wearing an SS style patch has been quietly removed from all platforms. Regis, this is bigger than a photo. It's even to me, it's even bigger than the removal of the photo. Uh, when you have armed guards in the Ukraine army that are being financed by the United States, and they're Nazis. Well, um, I've known about this for many, many years. In fact, I knew about the Nazis in Ukraine uh, prior to 2014 and the coup in Kiev. Uh, The United States had special operations Green Berets, training the Ukrainian military. Uh, There isn't any doubt in my mind, I don't have the exact proof, but that they were training Nazis as well. These Nazis are special operation forces. They are not just your frontline grunts that get received typical training. They are specialists. And they could only get that training from one place, the West, United States, Canada, and who knows where else. So uh, I'm not surprised. Now, the thing about the the patch, um, to me, this was no big deal. Uh, You know, Zelensky has been condemning Germany for not doing enough to send them more equipment, tanks and heavy artillery. And he said to them, you have to get over your Nazi history. And so why would he say that uh, when it's been acknowledged publicly uh, that there are neo-Nazi battalions, several of them, thousands and thousands of them fighting in the Ukraine? We saw this clearly 
with the assault on Mariupol and the capture of several hundred military people, many of them were, were Nazis. Uh, and who knows, probably high-ranking Western officials. Ukraine then bombed the prison that they were being held in the Donbass. They wanted to kill them so that, the, that Russia wouldn't have the evidence. Unfortunately, enough survived. So, yeah, this Nazi problem, I, I agree with you, is huge because it's the United States that is funding this, not only with weapons, but with money. And, and this is something that myself and others have been trying to communicate to people in the United States, especially that their money, their tax money is supporting Nazis. That's a huge problem in my mind. Well, you know, Reed, just recently, John Stewart gave an award to some Ukrainian soldier in Disneyland, and the guy had a black sun Nazi, Nazi tattoo on his arm. I've come to the conclusion, based on what I've seen, it's difficult to take a picture of a Ukrainian and not find some Nazi uh, icon. Good luck there. You know, if, you gotta, if, you, if, if you're going to find, take a picture in Ukraine, it seems to be everywhere. But here's the bad part of it. The Ukrainian Nazi elements weren't as integrated into the uh, pol po uh, political and um, military power base in the country before the U.S. overthrew the government in 2014 as afterwards. Here's the reality. Even the discussion of the Nazi problem, if you, if, as it were, in Ukraine, in Ukraine misses it because the pretext is usually Ukraine is and has been full of Nazis. But they don't get their power from Ukraine. They get their power from the U.S. They get their power from, the Canada, from Canada. They were brought to power. They were giving greater power than even their numbers are because the U.S. wanted to turn um, Ukraine into an anti-Russia bulwark. Anyway, your thoughts. Well, and and if I could add, if I could add one thing before you respond to that, that to me that also then begs the question: While Joe Biden was vice president and the commissar of Ukraine, was he dealing with these individuals, uh, Regis? Of course, he was. He he was pictured with several of the leaders of the Nazi Party, as was John McCain. Uh, Lindsey Graham and countless other politicians who went there. They were pictured with these Nazis. These pictures are all over YouTube. I've downloaded many of them. Uh, it's, they've, they've made no attempt to be secret about this. Uh, and, and, you know, you're right. Uh, the United States, the CIA, has been grooming these Nazis, and I'm not going to call them neo-Nazis, they're Nazis, <laughs> since World War II with Stefan Bandera's followers. Ever since then, the United States is behind their rise, behind the festering of this evil ideology in not only the general population, but in children, in schools, in textbooks, and in these military camps that these young kids go through. They're seven or eight years old, up to 19 years old, learning how to kill Russians. It's the United States and the CIA that has basically been funding and behind this in Ukraine. Not to get too caught up in conspiracy theories, and my tinfoil hat is uh, still in the cleaners, should Americans be concerned that some of these trained Nazis are coming to the United States 
at, whenever this Ukraine thing winds down, that they will find their way here. They will join forces with their brethren, such as those that were carrying the torches in Charlottesville. Can I add one word to that? Again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, Americans should be concerned. Um, There are already many, many Ukrainian expats living in the United States who uh, embrace this Nazi ideology. But even more serious than that, the the government of Canada uh, has been influenced by these Nazis. Um, they are they're publicly out there in almost every province of Canada. They have their organizations. They've been training kids in the the the, the Nazi ideology, and they have had an enormous influence on the government in Ottawa. Enormous influence, so much so that the deputy premier of Canada under Trudeau is Krista Nuland. Mm-hmm. Her grandfather right. was a Nazi. She's been accused of being a Nazi, pro-Ukraine. It's even rumored that she's in line to replace Jens Soltenberg Correct. as the head of NATO. Mm-hmm. Imagine this now. Imagine this, this Nazi ideology at the head of NATO. This is This is really terrifying when you think about it that it's not only this ideology, not only has infiltrated Canada, it's infiltrated the United States. The United States is supporting this effort. And there's no doubt that people know it if they're here in, if they're in Europe, that these Nazi organizations, these rat lines have been there ever since the end of World War II, sponsored, trained, directed, and funded by the United States. Well, the other thing is, I've read a number of things about, you know, and I'm not saying any, I'm sure there are a lot of Ukrainian refugees that are, you know, the majority of them are fleeing from, you know, war or whatever, and women, children, whatever. Okay, you know, I feel sorry for people like that. However, there are uh, increasing incidents throughout Europe, London. I got, I'm looking at a video, I've got a video up right now of some guy who spray painted a, 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 swastika and the police are making him um, clean it up and Europe is going to be facing some significant problems bringing these people into their home. They, I'll put it like this, they will live to regret what they're doing. It's like bringing those ISIS people there and they blew up their concerts. Now they're just bringing, I've heard the term used, vanilla ISIS to their home. Your thoughts? Yeah. Well, I'm I, I'm I'm not wearing a tin hat. I threw mine away a long time ago. <laughs> uh, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I am exposing, and so are you, real conspiracy. Uh, I have to tell you this: even the United States military officials have warned that much of the equipment that is being shipped into Ukraine has found its way to the black market, and who knows what they have? But if they have those uh, anti-plane missiles, mm-hmm. ground-to-air oh, yeah. missiles. Handheld, oh, yeah. yeah. shoulder, shoulder launched. Yeah, yeah. Uh, aircraft, mm-hmm. commercial public aircraft can be shot down anywhere in Europe. And you have to know that the same kind of stuff is being sent everywhere across Europe and in the United States. And so... There's high-ranking military officials that have expressed the concern publicly 
of the danger, okay, that this equipment and then these these Nazi ideologues uh, are spreading throughout the European Union right now. They have opened their doors. They don't even question who's going in there. You have to believe that many of these Nazis have fled, and, and maybe they didn't even flee. Maybe they were just going there deliberately to target these other countries at some particular point of their choosing. One of the things that Garland and I had been talking about on the show when reports of the quote-unquote missing um, munitions and, and, and missing pieces of military equipment were reported, we were saying, how long is it going to take for commercial airliners to start being taken down by these missiles? And then people are scratching their heads wondering, where'd this stuff come from? How'd they get their hands on this stuff? Because uh, it, it it's going to the highest bidder. We've got, we've got about a minute and a half. Yeah, well, uh, it's been reported also that 70% of the money in the weapons uh, right. sent to Ukraine have disappeared. They don't know where they went. I'll right. tell you what, those those weapons they're worried about, black market. Mm-hmm. The money they're worried about has gone into the pockets of Zelensky and his colleagues. And I, I would venture to bet has gone into the pockets of a number of Americans, high-ranking political people, who mm-hmm. are behind this whole effort as well. Regis Tremblay, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate the uh, the analysis and some of this. They might find the answers in Hunter Biden's laptop. Who knows? <laughs> Regis, thanks, man. Appreciate it. Look forward to having you back. Always good to be with you. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. The U.S. hails release of American abducted in Afghanistan more than two years ago. American Mark Freerich, a civilian contractor who was abducted in Kabul over two years ago, was freed in exchange for an Afghan detainee held in U.S. federal prison. U.S. and Afghan officials said this earlier today. This, while according to centralbanking.com, they reported uh, earlier this month that the U.S. may release frozen Afghan central bank funds. I wonder if there is a connection between the two. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's an award-winning journalist, broadcasting policy expert, and Palestinian activist based in Beirut, Lebanon, Laith Marouf. As always, Laith, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So Free Rich's family hailed his release in a statement saying they were grateful and excited to learn that he has been freed after being held for more than two and a half years. This while it was announced last week that the U.S. government plans to release three and a half billion dollars in frozen Afghan central bank funds to the Bank of International Settlements. A news report has claimed 
the Biden administration has worked with Switzerland and Afghan economists to set up a new fund to put billions of dollars in frozen Afghan money to use to promote economic stability in the country. Laith, your thoughts on the releasing of free rich and do you see any linkage between the statements last week about releasing some of or maybe half of the frozen assets and the release of these individuals? Yes, of course, you know, the United States would have not uh, released uh, this money if it had the uh, ability to just loot it. Um, we've seen that happen with uh, other countries before. And in this situation, um, you know, uh, it's clear that the Afghans wouldn't have released this uh, American um, prisoner of war uh, for just the exchange of one of uh, Afghan prisoner in the United States. The price must have been higher. I doubt it's the whole three and a half billion that's uh, the price for that American POW, but uh, clearly the United States came under a lot of pressure globally uh, to release the uh, national funds of Afghanistan. And, and even in the situation right now, uh, we see the United States pressuring on uh, Taiwan and uh, Ukraine, both for Russia and China. Russia and China were using the uh, the fact that the United States was looting the money of Afghanistan to show that the Americans are bad occupiers. And this is was harming the image of the United States. They are connected, these two stories, but of course they're connected to a bigger, wider battle globally for uh, legitimacy between the big three players, China, the United States, and Russia. Yeah, I, you know, and I tend to think, too, Biden was getting some heat here at home for that from the left flank of the party. And the midterms are close. Thank you. I tend to think that a lot of these moves we're seeing late are are about the midterms. I did want to—there's uh, uh, another interesting story at the cradle. Our eyes and our missiles are pointed at Karish. Hassan Nasrallah, the Hezbollah, Hezbollah leader, also called on authorities to form a crisis cell to find solutions for desperate depositors who have been storming banks across Lebanon. But I think they're talking about the the uh, the oil the uh, oil and or gas fields that Israel's talking about. Your thoughts, the Karish gas, gas field, the, the, which is at dispute. Your thoughts on that, um, Latham Roof? Yeah, I watched that speech. Uh, it was a somber kind of speech with undertones that uh, many analysts are still till today trying to figure out uh, it, the uh, resistance movement in Lebanon, Hezbollah, are ready to attack the infrastructure that the Israelis are trying to build in the disputed wa waters. Uh, if there is one drop of gas uh, being pulled out of there, and uh, originally we had the Zionists said that they will start extracting on September 1st, and then they delayed it till October 1st. Uh, that deadline is coming fast, um, and uh, the whole region is is uh, waiting on this. Um, the situation in Lebanon in the streets is is getting very tense, also because the lira continues crashing. It's almost forty thousand now for a dollar. Um, and uh, as in the last few uh, days, uh, within the last week, uh, there was at least two 
different uh, depositors walking in with gasoline and machine guns and um, at gunpoint taking out their deposits that have been um, stolen by the banks. Uh, so this is becoming a trend across Lebanon. This is the fourth of, or fifth uh, such incident in the last uh, few months, and the incidents are becoming closer. Uh, the country needs the gas, needs electricity to uh, lift itself from uh, the poverty that it is right now in. And it seems like the only way that will happen is either through a war or a um, capitulation by the Zionists and the Americans to allow Lebanon to extract its own uh, gas. Based upon the economic situation in Lebanon, uh, can Lebanon afford a war at this point? Actually, it is the uh, or 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 would your or would your answer be they can't afford not to? Yes, I mean I would say they can't afford not to go to war, but more more properly is to say that they are in the best situation to go to war because mm. they have nothing to lose, uh, and the gas fields that the Israelis are trying to loot are supposed to feed. Uh, the empire as a whole feed, you know, Europe with its needs uh, to replace the Russian um, gas that has been cut off. So the resistance in Lebanon, its actions right now uh, will be affecting the global scale, uh, including, you know, the empire and its components in a, with one missile, we could see that effect. So definitely, Hezbollah and the resistance in Lebanon uh, have now a, um, a chance of a lifetime to achieve something. And the logical way that sh this should be dealt with is that the United States um, pressures its colony, Zionist colony, and uh, stops them from looting and allows Lebanon to extract its gas um, otherwise, the whole trade in gas and uh, oil in the world will be affected by a war uh, if it starts in uh, on over these uh, disputed waters. Quick follow-up to that. Understanding that these talks between Lebanon and Israel are supposed to be U.S.-mediated talks, uh, how much faith can Lebanon put into the United States being an impartial arbiter here, and do you think that the United States really fears a war with Lebanon over this issue? Yeah, I mean, Hezbollah clearly doesn't trust the quote-unquote arbitrator. He, he is a former Israeli colonel that served uh, an, an dual citizen American-Israeli, so clearly he has um, you know, his bias to the Zionist colony and uh, the Jewish supremacist ideology that governs it. That, that is why Hezbollah has been negotiating with the gun, basically, outside the table. Mm. Hezbollah is not on the table that the government of Lebanon is on negotiating. And through its threats and uh, propaganda over the last month and so has... Is, is basically negotiating on live television with the empire. And the United States definitely cannot afford a, a war starting in Lebanon. It doesn't mean that the 
Americans and the Israelis don't have uh, big bombs that could uh, destroy some of uh, the country of Lebanon. But uh, the outcome of any war will harm mostly all trade in the world and uh, specifically gas and, and oil. And as winter is, is starting in, in the West, this is going to be a disaster uh, for Europeans. Iran says no nuclear deal without U.S. guarantees it won't walk again. Ibrahim Rahimi has said if it's a good deal and fair deal, we would be serious about reaching agreement. It needs to be lasting. And that's why, you know, I say they can't make get a deal with the U.S. because the U.S. empire has to maintain the position as we're in charge and everyone does what we tell them to do. And all that Tehran is saying is, look, let's make it a fair deal. You left before. You got to get us some guarantees. The U.S. can't do that. They can never um, accept that Iran has a right to make demands, even no matter how reasonable, in, in any deal so they can't get a deal. Anyway, your thoughts Partic- on Particularly because this isn't a treaty. That's right. So, yeah, it's an agreement. It's not a treaty. So the United States, a United States president can walk away from it anytime he wants to. Yep. Your thoughts? Yeah. And, and of course, the Europeans themselves now don't want to even uh, provide Iran with uh, guarantees. Uh, there was some guarantees last time uh, with the last deal where if the United States withdrew, the other states uh, can continue dealing uh, with trade as, as the agreement uh, was supposed to stipulate, but now, uh, you know, it's clear that the Europeans are even in a weaker position. They have uh, shown themselves to be full vessels of the United States. Um, and uh, if, the, if the U.S. is not going to guarantee Iran anything, there's no need for Iran to enter into this agreement. And this is the difference in um, the, um, the cabinet of governing right now, the Iranian um, Tehran city, you know, and the foreign affairs is a different team than the one before. And as we see that they have taken decisions that they will only enter an agreement if it is um, fair to Iran and can provide a just solution. Um, otherwise, uh, Iran has built its own uh, economy to withstand these uh, sanctions by the West that are irrelevant on a global scale after all this um, uh, decoupling of much of the world markets from the U.S. dollar, as, as we see happening right now. We have just about two and a half minutes left. Middle East Eye reports Hamas' decision to restore ties with Syrian government sparks controversy. Many supporters disappointed to see uh, Hamas reconnect with Bashar al-Assad administration 10 years after backing opposition forces in Syria. Your thoughts? Yeah, this was the worst uh, mistake that Hamas did in its whole life, breaking away from Syria during the beginning of the war on it and actually allying itself with Al-Qaeda and ISIS and training them with the same training that the Syrian army gave them specifically in uh, building tunnels. That that harmed Syria so badly um, that, uh, you know, now the statement that came out from Hamas, we haven't heard yet. It's been three days, I believe, right now since this statement was published by Hamas. It's been three days that the Syrian government has not responded. And that is because the Syrian people and the Syrian government are 
I'm still holding a, uh, a grudge for this betrayal, and uh, we need to hear a outright apology from the leadership of Hamas for the loss of life uh, that resulted in this betrayal. Uh, but it, it is a, a good step in the good direction by Hamas that shows that they realize the uh, Muslim Brotherhood wing uh, that they try to depend on in, in the early 2010s uh, is, is in non-existence today. Uh, really quickly, we have just less than a minute. So what do you think, what were the political calculations that were made that re- resulted in the betrayal that you refer to? Well, of course, uh, the uh, Arab Spring or Arab Autumn that uh, Obama created, uh, the, uh, many people fell to the illusion that the Muslim Brotherhood, which at that point basically captured um, Cairo and was in control of uh, Istanbul and Qatar, uh, was going to steamroll across the whole mm. Arabic world and uh, create a new front. And that's when uh, you know Hamas jumped onto this uh, train of the Muslim Brotherhood that, of course, fizzled out very fast and uh, resulted in the death fields that we saw in Libya and Syria and Iraq. Laith Marouf, as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate uh, that analysis. Stay with us, please, one second. And uh, we look forward to having you back. Thank you for having me. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There is a great piece at antiwar.com as well as popularresistance.org and other places. Dear friends, Xi and Putin project unity. In the official Chinese and Russian statements regarding last Thursday's meeting between President Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin in Samarkand lies not a scintilla of evidence that China's support for Putin's invasion of Ukraine has weakened. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a former CIA analyst and co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, and he's the author of this piece, Ray McGovern, as always, Ray. Welcome back. Thank you. You write, in my view, if Putin decides to up the ante in Ukraine, Xi would be likely to support him. Most analysts of China doubt that this would extend to China's stirring up trouble in the South China Sea or opposite Taiwan. But most Chinese analysts did not expect China to tolerate, much less endorse, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So your guess is as good as mine. Your thoughts, Ray McGovern. (laughs) That's pretty insightful analysis, huh? Your guess is... <laughs> oh, it's brilliant. It's, 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 it's better than... Uh, what, really. we'll put it this way. It's better than what we're getting on MSNBC and CNN. <laughs> go, go ahead. Well, I concede you that. <laughs> uh, the issue here is uh, my, my focus. Some people call it my fixation on the China factor here. I mean, nobody seems to realize that it becomes really obvious 
that there's an entente, a virtual alliance between China and Russia here, that it's not going to go away, and that if the U.S. continues down this path, this path, uh, most recently Biden talking about uh, defending Taiwan if the Chinese invade, I mean, don't these benighted statesmen, so to speak, realize they're they're talking about a two-front war? So uh, what I'm trying to raise here is the specter of uh, China fully supporting whatever Putin decides to do, and that is likely to be uh, more adventurous, I would guess, than what he has done so far in Ukraine. And the reason I, I refer back to what Chinese specialists tell me is that you know I have some really good good people who know China in and out, and uh, you know I defer to their judgment normally, and I deferred to their judgment when I thought that Putin would never ever invade Ukraine if he didn't have strong Chinese backing. And my Chinese friends, almost to a man and woman, said, <laughs> no, no, Ray, China's bedrock principle is adherence to the, the principle of sovereignty, non-intervention. Westphalia, come on, Ray, the Chinese would never condone that. Well, they did. They not only condoned it, but my reading is that they blessed it and they gave what we Latin scholars call a nihil upstart. Nothing stands in the way of you doing what you think you have to do, Vlad, in Ukraine. So why I mention all that is that here we are in a really different situation. Uh, this is something of a uh, of an inflection point, as the smart people in Washington say. Putin's got to do uh, something different now. Uh, that is, he's likely to do something different if, if, for example, terrorists mount attacks on nuclear power programs or nuclear power facilities in Russia. And just last Friday, Putin accused terrorists of doing precisely that. So getting back to the China angle I think if Putin does something extraordinary, more than just uh, knocking out the electricity as he's shown he can do in Ukraine, uh, then the Chinese will back him. And that's big. Now, my Chinese associates say, well, we're not so sure. We're not so sure. Well, okay, that's all right. Even if there's only a 30% chance, for God's sake. What does that mean? What does that mean for, for what the U.S. faces in terms of a, a strategic challenge? Not only Russia and China together, but Russia, China, and most of the rest of the world, which was made very clear uh, at the at the SCO uh, meeting in Uzbekistan just last week. Um, here's something I think you know the the U.S. is is building is is, is creating this, and, and this is something I think this is of, of great consequence. Right now, Congress has a bill to make to, to 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 make Russia a sponsor of state terrorism. Russia has said, if you do that. Our diplomatic relations go off a cliff. That's it. The U.S. Congress also has a, this bill to arm billions of dollars in Taiwan. Con and, and China has said, 
If you do that, our diplomatic relations go off a cliff. So both of these countries are, I think, the leadership of these countries are looking at the U.S. saying these people are, they've gone over the edge, um, they're unreasonable, and I think that we have been creating this for a while, and now it's to a point where they're not saying it's a military alliance, but one would have to suspect that that is at least a discussion, if not, you know, a foregone conclusion. And, right? let, and let me just quickly say, you surely don't want to invade one and find out the answer. Yeah, yeah, you don't want to find out the hard way. Yeah, good point. <laughs> Ray. Well, you, you put your finger on it. Um, on the other side, one has to realize that China doesn't want a war, for God's sake. I mean, mm-hmm. look at the economic uh, uh, effects of a war. Uh, a major war with mm-hmm. the U.S. or anyone else, much less the, the dangers of uh, destroying the rest of the world, including China and the U.S. So I think the Chinese and the Russians are still on a uh, shagamu, is what the uh, the Russians would say, step by step, just little, as Putin said on Friday, we're just making incremental rate, uh, gains in, in southern uh, Ukraine. We're not going to stop doing that, but be aware that we are aware of these other threats, terrorist threats. This is the first time, in my view, that he's focused on terrorist threats. I think he really is concerned that some crazy Ukrainian or some crazy uh, Russian uh, paid by some Ukrainian would indeed uh, attack in some way one of their nuclear power plants. Uh, There's one in Kursk, not so far away from Ukraine. Uh, and if that happened, then then what Putin is saying, look, all all bets will be off then because we have ways of retaliating. Uh, they probably haven't even thought of short of full nuclear war. I find it interesting uh, when you read President Putin's statements from uh, Samarkand. He says the course to develop a strategic partnership with China is an unconditional priority. It enjoys broad support of the people. It's based on deep mutual trust and therefore is not subject to external influence. So I think when 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 you take a step back and you look at the United States backing out of the JCPOA and you look at the United States, for example, up until now, not wanting to recognize President Maduro, all the all the various things that the United States does that is in direct contradiction to what the United States says, uh, that when you start hearing people talk about deep mutual trust and not subject to external influence, there's a lot that can be read into that. Yes, and I'm not sure that our sophomores, the the ones that are advising uh, Biden, uh, understand that. I mean, it was only June of last year that they told Biden confidently, look, look, Putin has this major problem with China. Uh, China is squeezing their word, squeezing Russia, big, long border, many thousands of miles. Uh, China going to be a military as well as economic power. Oh, the Russians are really in a bind here with China. That's what they told Biden. And that's what Biden told Putin. Now, my God, that was June 16 last year. I'm not sure they even have it now, because as they brief the New York Times, they focus on things like, "Mm, well, you know, what Putin said 
at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, what he said was that we understand you Chinese have questions and concerns. Oh, concerns. That must mean that the Chinese are concerned about what we're doing in Ukraine. <laughs> My God, it was an awful, feeble leaf to, to, to rely on. Uh, it's just, you know, it's a, it was just ridiculous how the guidance from the White House to the New York Times and the CIA from the New York Times uh, was very clear. Look, uh, emphasize the fissures, emphasize the, quote, concerns. It's the only word they could emphasize. The rest of the thing was a love-in. So what, what bothers me is that I think that uh, what I call these, what I call them, uh, uh, well, I call them a lot of things, uh, Jake uh, Sullivan and uh, this fellow Blinken. The sophomores. Uh, yeah, yeah, sophomores is what I usually call them. I, I call them also uh, other things, uh, trying to think the word. Uh, uh, anyhow, uh, I'm not sure that they still get it. I think that they're so ingrained in this exceptionalism business about the United States that they really think that the U.S. can somehow take on China and Russia at the same time. And I, as you say, uh, I hate to see them disabused of that by uh, by attacking, by supporting, uh, or by getting involved in an armed conflict out in the Far East, much less uh, a wider conflict in in Ukraine. Now, I think chances are less than even that this is going to happen. But what I'm trying to say is, look, you know, uh, this is a new element. This new element is simply that that. Putin has said, look, there are terrorist attacks being planned. And then he says, and I'm not sure this has been made public yet, uh, but they're being planned uh, near our nuclear facilities. That is nuclear power plants in the Russian Federation. He says, I'm not talking about Zaporozhye here. I'm talking about in Russia. That's new. And he did a couple of paragraphs on that, saying, "Look, this is this is really dangerous. This would call forth a retaliation such as you've not seen before." So uh, this is getting heating up, and I think that if anybody listens to McGovern or, or Scott Ritter or anybody else that warns about where this is headed, uh, they have to brace Blinken and Nod and uh, Sullivan and these guys. Just tell them, look, mention to the president that you guys are not in control of the world anymore, far from it. And unless you uh, cease and desist in Ukraine, for example, and unless you tell the Ukrainians not to, mention, not, not to mount terrorist attacks on Russian nuclear facilities in Russia, uh, there's going to be a real problem. We have just about a minute left. And so when you talk about Sullivan, you talk about Blinken, Samantha Power, the, the sophomores, that's on the Department of State side. Which is interesting because they're supposed to be the diplomats and they're supposed to be the ones that are talking us through the solutions to problems, not causing them or fanning the flames. But we're the generals here. When when Blinken goes to the president and says, Mr. President, it's time for us to invade China. Where are the generals here? We got 45 seconds. That's a really good question. We know that it's uh, the, the Blinkens and the Sullivans. I call them reckless and feckless. OK, That's right. right. <laughs> the new appellation or sink. We know that they're driving the policy plus one person who's in charge of this area in the White House. So what are the, what are the generals saying? I don't know. Okay. And that's really troublesome okay. because these guys are not 
not top drawer generals. And the way they got to where they were was always saluting. So would they salute a stupid move by uh, by Biden on the advent on the advice of these reckless, feckless guys? I'm afraid they would. Uh, has the chairman's joint chief? Okay, that's a good question. Thank you, Ray McGovern. As always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Chile refuses Israeli ambassador over killing of Palestinian teen. Quote, the fact that Gabriel Boric's extremely normal and reasonable actions in response to Israeli violence against civilians is seen as unprecedented reflects incredibly poorly on the rest of the international community. That's according to Common Dreams. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a U.S. labor and human rights lawyer, writer, and activist. He's been a peace activist throughout his life. He's been deeply involved in the movement for peace and social justice in Colombia, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and other countries in the global south. He has taught international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law since 2012. Dan, Professor Dan Kovalik, as always, Dan, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So Israeli occupation forces fatally shot a 17-year-old Odai Trad Salah in the head during a Thursday morning raid in the village of Kufr outside of Jenin in the illegally occupied West Bank of Palestine. Human rights defenders on Friday welcomed a move by Chile's progressive president to cut off accepting the new Israeli ambassador's credentials in response to the killing of this Palestinian teenager. Dan Kovalik, how significant is this move by President Boric? Oh, I think it's very significant. Um, You know, as the Common Dreams piece points out, the fact that this is not more common and that people think this is somehow shocking just shows how much Israel's gotten a free pass over the years for many incidents like this. Uh, You know, killing of youth, journalists, and others. Uh, I was surprised NPR even had a story yesterday saying that you know, the violence against Palestinians in the West Bank has really increased this year. So, you know, this is a good sign, and I hope other countries follow suit. And, you know, here's the thing about it, people that make noise about this. The U.S. can make up claims against Syria. Oh, yeah, you used weapons of mass destruction. You used uh, gas. And when people look into it, they, like, didn't find any. They had to, you know, um, shall we say, adjust the um, IAEA report. And then uh, ultimately they said we found the equivalent of bleach in the area. And the U.S. can then bomb them, literally, and sanction them based on made-up stuff. But if this guy says, ah, I don't think it's right to be shooting kids, minors in the head, then all of a sudden they're going to, you know, lose their mind. Uh, your thoughts? Yeah, well, I mean, there's just uh, an obvious double standard when it comes to human rights. I mean, the U.S. cares about the 
you know, human rights violations of its adversaries, whether they're real, made up or imagined. Um, and they don't care about uh, the human rights abuses of its allies and partners like Israel, like Saudi Arabia, for example, um, like Ukraine. Um and really, the U.S. should lose all credibility because of that, you know, the, the, uh, on this issue, on many others, but certainly on this issue. Uh, but it somehow is able to maintain this double standard without many people questioning it. Israel's Ministry of Foreign Affairs responded by calling this so-called snub puzzling and unprecedented behavior that seriously harms the relations between the two countries. Now, this I did not know. Chile is home to the largest Palestinian community outside of the Middle East. So uh, Boric's move makes more sense from a political perspective when one understands that. Uh, but do you think that this is the beginning of a turn? And also, what do you expect the U.S.'s response to be as it relates to U.S. relations with Chile. Yeah, well, this will damage relations with the U.S., certainly to some extent. The U.S. will be furious about this. And yeah, I mean, obviously this, you know, Boric is really representing his own people by taking the stand um, against Israel, which is unprecedented Yeah, for the most part. Again, Israel literally gets away with murder. Um, in the international community without much pushback. But I do think the pushback's growing now. I mean, you're just seeing this more and more. Uh, I think Israel's becoming more isolated, and it's becoming more isolated because it's becoming more vicious towards the Palestinians. It's becoming more right-wing politically. Mm -hmm. There is really no left, for the most part, remaining in Israel um, so you just have this brutal right-wing apartheid state that, you know, more and more countries are starting to recognize. Uh, the IMF released a report today on the Bolivian economy in which it recommends adopting drastic neoliberal measures. IMF tells Bolivia to drop its successful economic model, and it's bad enough that they overthrew the country. The country got the reins of power back, and now the IMF is saying you have to do the same things that um, have been hurting the entire region. I think that those the days of neoliberalism being accepted in Latin America are quickly moving behind us. Dan, your thoughts? Well, absolutely. We have to remember, since we were just talking about Chile, that mm -hmm. Chile was the first country that uh, in which these neoliberal economic uh, policies was introduced through violence, right, through the violent overthrow of a president and the installation of, of uh, fascism there, really, in, in the 1970s. But those days are ending, uh, and they're ending in Chile with the, you know, now they're rewriting the Constitution, which is still the Pinochet Constitution of, of the 1970s. Um, yeah, and Bolivia, Argentina, other countries are rejecting um, neoliberalism and IMF austerity measures. I think, I think the IMF is going to be hard-pressed to keep imposing these on Latin America. So I'm going to read this. Uh, the, the, the IMF says that uh, the Bolivian economy, which it recommends adopting drastic neoliberal measures, including reducing worker salaries, cutting public investments and ending 
currency controls. The report takes aim at the government spending on development, saying the government must restrict spending, including eliminating the end-of-year wage bonus for workers. They must restrict the growth of wages for public sector workers. And it's interesting to me because I think how many years ago was it that 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 Greece went through a very similar circumstance at the behest of the IMF, the introduction of neoliberal policies. They had to cut salaries. They had to cut public investment. I think they even sold off some of the antiquities in Greece uh, to the private sector. And so with all of that saying being said, I wonder now, is this an opportunity for China to step in and play a bigger role in Bolivia because we know that China has a history now of stepping in, lower interest loans, and 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 injecting itself into economies in circumstances like this. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, Argentina has already turned to China mm-hmm. and away from the IMF. Um, of course, we have to uh, remember China just recently forgave the debts of mm-hmm. I think, 23 different uh, developing countries. So, yeah, China is now seen as a, is a better, much better economic partner um, than the U.S. and the IMF. And again, yeah, uh, Nicaragua has now turned to China. Honduras is turning to China. So, yeah, you're going to see more and more countries in the hemisphere turning to China for better deals. Marco Rubio is now criticizing Joe Biden from the right, which is kind of, there ain't a lot of room over there, but he's found some, uh, <laughs> for his intentions to recognize Maduro as the president of Venezuela. We're hearing that after the midterms, he may be doing that. I mean, look, I guess I'm going to recognize Wilmer Leon as Wilmer Leon next, and somebody's Thank going you. to complain. Marco I mean, Rubio will complain. Yeah, he'll complain because we should call him Juan Guaido. I don't get it. Anyway, this again yeah, shows— why do you want to insult me like that? Uh, All right. Th- this again shows the absurdity of American foreign policy, where if Joe Biden, out of necessity, because mm-hmm. people need fuel, has to finally— Settle down in reality and say, "Okay, he's the president. There's four or five idiots standing around going, how dare you recognize reality? Um, It's absurd. But your thoughts, Dan? Yeah, well, Rubio, of course, is at the far right wing of the spectrum on these types of issues. And that's because he's playing, of course, to his base in Florida, in Miami in particular, uh, the right wing Cubans, right wing Venezuelans that live there. And so he's always going to take this ultra right wing stance um, against progressives in Latin America. And this this is part of it. But, yeah, Juan Guaido's days are done. I mean, he he had a moment in the sun where, <laughs> you know, a lot of the world inexplicably um, took him seriously. But that time is way past. I mean, he he is a spent force. And Biden knows that. And he knows if he's going to deal with Venezuela and he has to deal with Venezuela over oil, he's going to have to deal with Maduro. So the truth is, it doesn't matter what Marco Rubio says. Now, this is what I find interesting in this story, is that Rubio claims that after after the midterm elections, Biden will recognize Maduro as the president of Venezuela. He also claims that after the midterms, the White House will look to reestablish relations with Cuba. And he insists that 
Biden will argue that since Colombia recognizes Maduro, the United States must do the same. They will do that after November. And and Rubio says, remember, I told you today. As though, you know, he's this is some brilliant revelation that Marco or Marco Rubio got his um, crystal ball out of the shop the same way they got the darn uh, laptop from Hunter Biden out of the shop. Uh, your thoughts on that? That all of this after the midterms? Yeah, well, it may be true. I mean, again, he's pretty much uh, in a de facto way recognized Maduro by sending missions that mm-hmm. down there to talk to him. And right? beg I mean, for oil. Right. He's, he's, he's done it, maybe not officially, but, but obviously in practice he's recognized him. So, yeah, this is not exactly great fortune telling by <laughs> Rubio at the same time. Yeah, it may be that he's going to wait till after the midterms to actually officially recognize him just so he can gain advantage. In places like Florida, um, sure, that seems reasonable to me. Yeah, but it's just and it's another example that our Congress is just in has descended into total madness. They've got one bill going on that will infuriate China over Taiwan. Meanwhile, they've got another bill going on that will infuriate Russia, saying that Russia is a state sponsor of terrorism. So our Congress, they're really the 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 um, the broken link in this chain more so than anybody else. 30 seconds. Yeah, no, the Congress is showing itself to be quite uh, right wing, um, certainly to the right of Biden. And and that's true even with the Democrats um, in Congress. Uh, you look at the rail, the threatened railroad strike, by the way, many Democratic Congress people uh, were ready to uh, to call on the president to invoke emergency powers to prevent that strike, whereas Biden didn't want to do that. You know, so I think I think Congress is is not a re- reliable friend for progressives uh, at this point. And quickly, we got 15 seconds. Has this vote ta- has the union voted on that initiative yet, or is that still out? I, I believe it's still pending. Okay, okay. Yeah. Dan Kovalik, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that analysis. We look forward to having you back. Thank you very much. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Common Dreams reports as migrants confirm they were misled, calls for prosecution of DeSantis and Abbott grow. More than just a political stunt, said one critic. This is about inhumane and illegal conduct toward vulnerable people that is an affront to the values of every decent human being. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. Uh, He's a San Antonio-based specialist in immigration law as certified by the Texas Board of Legal Specialization. He currently works on various family-based and employment-based immigration law cases, as well as deportation cases. Carlos Castaneda. Carlos, as always, welcome back. Thank you very much for having me. Always a pleasure to be here. One of the things that I found very interesting, uh, once the story was, was released that 
particularly as it relates to the individuals that were flown from Florida to Massachusetts, that they were deceived in in and lied to in order to get them on the plane. That to me then sounds like uh, kidnapping. So help me out here, uh, Carlos. Are these cries for charges against uh, against the individuals involved here? Uh, are they misplaced? The main thing that would depend on is what exactly the governor's office told the individuals to persuade them to, from what it seems voluntarily, enter these buses and be bussed over several hours away from where they were located. As of now, I don't have that information. And so, speaking as an attorney, I will say that much of what I say is dependent on the facts that are revealed in the coming days. Mm -hmm. What I can say is this. If it's a matter of, shall we say, an arrangement in which I decide to board a bus because someone says they're going to give me a ride to my to my office, for instance, so something like an Uber driver, but that's not officially through Uber. And I say, okay, I'll get on this uh, vehicle of yours if you take me there, under the understanding that you will take me there. Mm -hmm. We have an arrangement. If this person ends up not taking me there and takes me somewhere completely different, what we might call that in legalese, so to say, is fraudulent inducement. Mm -hmm. That is, I was induced to board this vehicle for false reasons. Now, from what I know as to this, migrants were told that housing and jobs would be available to them in where they would be brought. I don't know if what they were told was that there were specific housing units available to them with specific jobs that they could then uh, work at, or if they were just told in general terms that, yeah, this place in Massachusetts has uh, apartment buildings that are available for rent and you know, you can seek employment there if you so choose to. If it's in general terms, then it would not necessarily be a fraudulent inducement. However, given that many people misunderstood that, then there's an issue as to the understanding between the two groups of individuals involved. Now, more specifically, as to your point as to whether or not this is kidnapping. If you have someone voluntarily boarding a bus, it's a bit difficult to make an argument as to kidnapping in say. However, because it is early days and I don't have all the information, I don't want to absolve the governor's office of any potentiality for liability, especially because we already have had this happen with the Texas governor's office, as you will know. And the difference I see in the Florida case is this. And here's where I get a bit complicated. From what I have heard, the governor's office of Florida told migrants and specified for migrants mailing addresses that they were to give to the immigration agency, ICE, mm -hmm, mailing addresses that were not only nowhere near where they were going, Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts, not only were nowhere near the addresses where the migrants intended to actually go to, those, most of which I understand, did have a particular destination in mind, as is oftentimes the case, and nowhere near where the court proceedings were. For example, some people were given a mailing address of a homeless shelter in the South when their court case is somewhere in Tacoma, Washington, for instance. And that right there is a huge red flag to me as a lawyer because I've seen my fair share of cases in which individuals who intend to go to their immigration court proceedings are just waiting to get the notice in the mail because they will not 
their notices from the immigration court specifying when it will occur in most cases at this stage. And if they have an incorrect address, they're going to miss their hearing and they're going to be deported or ordered deported in absentia. And then they might come to me saying, hey, I missed my court date. I just found about it last week because of this reason or that reason. And then I have to find a basis to reopen their case. Now, the Florida governor's office, in giving people these alternative addresses that have nothing to do with their court case, in also giving people a change of address form for a totally different agency that is, that is not ICE and is not the immigration court, they have basically set up a series of conditions, in my view, that make it more likely for people's legal cases to be thrown into disarray before they even really begin. And for me as a lawyer, I focus on the immigration court practice. That, for me, is perhaps the biggest red flags, purposefully or maybe even negligently, messing up and derailing people's legal cases before they really get a chance to begin. That is some level of sneakiness or true incompetence. It's one or the other. Well, let me ask you this uh, interesting question I have. In the event that the immigrants or refugees, however they choose to apply, are damaged some kind of way, they suffer some level of damages, either to what you're saying or something else, they suffer some level of damages. In their status as immigrants or potential refugees, do they have standing to bring civil action to be um, compensated in some way or have some kind of action taken for the damages that they have suffered? Yes, and there are two reasons for that. One, when it comes to civil court cases in states, one of the requirements for standing is you have spent a certain number of days physically present. That is a residence requirement. So you can take advantage of the courts of that state. There is no citizenship requirement. And frankly, I would be a bit doubtful as to whether or not that would be constitutional or not. Uh, in addition, they do have standing be either in the case of a civil lawsuit or in the case of a contractual relationship. And that is pretty clear when it comes to the law. That seems to me like a, you know, like one of the one of the way one of the, you know, avenues, I think, to 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 take to seek redress for these people. Does it seem to you like a um, a realistic avenue? It's realistic enough to explore. I can't say without more detail as to what people were told, what they were given right. to understand, what were the impacts on them as to whether or not they have a, a viable civil case. So I won't extend my Certainly. my analysis to those areas. But yes, that's certainly something worth looking at. And I believe other nonprofit organizations and immigrant advocate groups have indeed been looking at that. Peeling it back or, or, or stepping back to the broader discussion about immigrants being bused from Texas to New York, being bused from Texas now to the uh, vice president's house in Washington, D.C., uh, th this political stunt, as it has been described, um, because an, I think on Sunday, another busload of people believed to be from Venezuela and Nicaragua were dropped outside of the on Saturday, were dropped outside of Vice President Kamala Harris's home in Washington, D.C. Uh, talk about the broader the broader picture there and and 
is that is transporting those individuals to Washington, D.C. by these governors a bigger problem? In terms of this political stunt gathering attention, it has been effective. In terms of this changing overall the direction of the discourse, I would say that's a definite no. I don't think anyone has moved from one side to the other in terms of that in terms of their beliefs as to this particular issue and series of issues. Uh, immigration is not just one monolithic theme. Mm-hmm. I would say overall, what this has done is galvanize people more to their particular mm, bastions of ideology and is divisive to the extent that it creates less and less room for collaboration, for understanding on the issue. And so it is more beneficial from a partisan sense than it is to any uh, legislative or policy-making sense. It's a move to me. It's a, a pre-November move. It is. This is about the midterms, and it's about saying this is one of our issues, and we're going to throw some red meat to the base, base by saying, look at that. Here's immigrants. Ha, ha, ha. We turn the tables on the liberals or whatever the case may be. But the sad thing is, and look, I understand politics. I'm no stranger to politics, but you're using people's lives at, you know what I mean? And actually hurting human beings as opposed to simply some, you know, rhetoric. Indeed, I would agree with all those topics. And I will say this. If the governor's office had at least given the uh, Martha Vineyard Municipal Authorities a bit of a heads up, this would not actually have been a major issue in which people were scrambling. There are organizations out there that facilitate people's efforts to find the location that they were heading towards in the first place. And on that note, I should emphasize most of my clients who I've seen detained, and while I don't have statistics to specify the following, I would imagine that most individuals entering the United States in this manner in general do actually have a particular address, a particular destination in mind when they come to the United States, either because they kind of stay with a friend or maybe with a family member who is already here, at least until they get on their feet or able to get their own housing unit. Mm-hmm. Now, for any entity to transport them to a random location in some part of the country as part of a political stunt, that impairs those plans, requires them to change their, uh, their options there, and also creates a burden on family members who may be expecting them. So while someone who entered the United States through Texas may have plans to go to Michigan and all of a sudden gets shipped to New York, well, that in itself may not prevent them from continuing on with their immigration case and ultimately making it to their final destination. But it really throws a wrench in their plans. And what definitely can mess up their efforts is if is if they are giving change of address forms that are incorrect are assigned by other authorities, mailing addresses that have nothing to do with them, because that creates the major potential for derailing immigration court cases. Carlos Castaneda, as always, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Always a pleasure.
Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out.